This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Debo. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our families. And good morning, this is Dave Debo. Good evening if you're listening to the rebroadcast. Coming up later on the program, Jay Moran will be here with Jeremy Besh. He's a DEI consultant with Stone Bench Consulting, looking at identity and awareness and privilege. And they're gonna—they're actually going to have a pretty neat exercise to, to run through some of the ways that people can be more self-aware about the racism that might be inside them that they're just not aware of. But first, Carl Schellerhorn is here. He is Director of Youth Programs for the Mental Health Advocates of Western New York, President and Founder of Schellerhorn Consulting, Alcoholism, Substance Abuse Counselor, training and teaching around the, the field for the past 20 years or so. A, a name that I think if you're in the field in Buffalo, you have probably heard before. Carl, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Dave. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Jefferson Avenue. You've shopped at that store. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's interesting because um, I have family members who shop at that store, friends who shop at that store. And, and of course, with all of the exposure that's received since the shooting, I think Buffalonians realize how important that store is. And, and not just a place to shop, but a place, it's a fixture. A place of community. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, as we talk about the mental health uh, aspects of this, that's probably important because having a space where you can feel safe and secure is all part of that. Definitely. You know, you use that word community. It means coming together. And we talk about a way of coming together as being a way of, of promoting our well-being. And, and so communities are, are important for all of us to feel like you're part of something. And of course, in the local black community, there's, there's of course, different segments of the community. There's the faith community. There's uh, you know, other communities uh, of, of businesses and so forth in that, in that area. But, but this store in particular uh, was, was a fixture. And, and I think it's brought out because people realize now that it's gone, how much fixture it is. But at the same time, and, and I know there's the whole discussion of uh, thoughts and prayers being good, but now is the time for action. Uh, many of the ministers on the east side have said things like, this is not the time for a kumbaya moment. At the same time, though, I think we can look at what has happened to that community and maybe, tell me if I'm wrong, celebrate the idea that people have really come together. I would agree. I would but, agree. And I, I think, you know, what it comes down to me is that, um, so the black community in Buffalo has always been together, right? It's now... The, the community at large mm. realizes, oh, we need to support the local black community. And of course, I was at, a, uh, at another meeting, uh, which I won't say which organization yesterday, a group I'm with. Uh, one of the people said, oh, we should, we should uh, support Black Restaurant Week. A and I thought to myself, wow, that was an interesting comment. Because right. a lot of times, I mean, who had even heard of that perhaps right. before 
you know, I mean, some people weren't even aware there's such a thing in Buffalo. Or I, I think there there would have also been the reaction from some people that said, Black Restaurant Week, why isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. Well, I'm you going. know where we're going. Of course, right, you know where that. Right, right, yeah. right. right. Um, and I think, of course, then you're talking about black pride. You're talking about this is this is something that is his historical that we have as as a country and as Americans, we we celebrate our culture and it's done in all kinds of ways. And I think certainly if you talk about once again, going back to the community, going back to just just the coming together, um, it's so important to have places to gather and to celebrate community. There's been a lot of talk about the mental health of the community, obviously, after something like this happens. Talk about the pressure, though, that is on a specific community, a black community, when they know that they and their neighbors were targeted because of their color. That's different. That's not just fear, I think, that, that they would generally have, nor is it dealing with the racism that they probably normally face. This, this is a different level. Yeah, oh, totally. And I think it, it raises the fear exponentially. Right. I mean, of course, we knew in the past, we know there's been issues around um, targeted attacks, maybe individually. We know about, frankly, about police, uh, you know, attacks and, 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 and violence. That's that's reality. But stuff like this is, is totally different where an individual comes in and, and, and literally plans and, and takes the lives of, of many individuals. And, and so what it does, it, it creates, I guess what I call it a shockwave through through Buffalo and also nationwide. I think it wasn't just a Buffalo thing. I think it really, it, it just, you know, once again, just like other, you know, uh, you know, like South Carolina and so mm. forth, other things that have happened that are racially motivated that that it came home. And, and I think when that happens, it really, uh, it, it increases the fear and the anxiety that people have. I, now, I keep going back to the children. Okay. Dave, of course, this is kind of almost like, kind of like uh, dovetails into Uvalde, but but I always think about the children in our community who now are faced with growing up knowing that something like that happened and also knowing about Uvalde and knowing that, mm. okay, where am I safe? Yeah. Right? And when there's this fear of safety, so in other words, I'm going to take you back, Dave, to your days of college and, 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 and psychology 101. There's Maslow's hierarchy needs. So sure. we talk about safety. The pyramid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So safety is, is, is primary in that hierarchy needs in terms of what we need to be well and mentally and emotionally. And if you don't have that safety, you're going to be missing something and, and, and lacking something in your life, definitely. You and I have talked about mental health issues before. You turned me on to a book that I, I mention now whenever I talk about mental health. The idea, the title of the book and the idea, the, the concept are both the same. The Body Keeps Score. Yeah, The Body Keeps the Score by Des Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Continued trauma takes more of a toll than any one incident. Yeah, so the whole concept is that trauma, well, first of all, Dave, trauma is different for everyone. So, you know, in fact, Dr. Vanderkolk talks in his book about, gives an example of two people in a car accident, a wife and a husband. And in that car accident, uh, the, the husband is, is, I guess you could say, unscathed mentally, emotionally. Mm -hmm. The wife, however, suffers trauma to where she experiences the flashbacks and the, the concerns, doesn't want to get in the car, that kind of thing. So you could have two people going to the same thing and having a different uh, response. But with that same respect, trauma can last 
a lifetime unless it's, you know, if it's treated. And some people never fully recover from trauma. Uh, you know, I've done trainings uh, around for veterans. I've done trainings for different communities that deal with trauma in all kinds of ways. And, and it's something that, that there are approaches to treat it. But more often than not, a lot of people just don't get the help. Sure, sure. What can people, what should people be doing right now if, if they're feeling the effects? I would say, personally, because I work in the field of behavioral health, I'm, I'm a counselor, I've worked clinically, and, and I think one of the things people can do is, is not to be afraid to seek help, professional help. There are actually modalities, we call it a treatment, to address trauma. Uh, one is called EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, which is a form of trauma treatment that, that people can use to work through these traumas in a safe way so they're not re-traumatized. See, what happens is, Dave, is that sometimes people are, are reliving these, these events over and over and over. Look at TV. I mean, just last night we had the yeah. I couldn't watch. I couldn't watch, Dave, because those, those images just this is disturbing. So imagine you're someone in the black community here locally who turns on the TV and keeps seeing the images of tops. Just just at just the store alone. Triggering. And, and you and right and you were there that day, maybe before or after. You didn't have to be there at the time. It's but it's very triggering. Okay. And there's also you say something called vicarious trauma. People who are just watching the news. Exactly. Watching the news, witnessing it through someone else's perspective, but still having those same effects. And we know that, you know, I'll just say, Dave, the media many times will will contribute to that. So I always encourage people to sometimes you just need to turn it off. Not turn yeah. off the show right now, of course, Dave, but, <laughs> but no but, but seriously, but, but turn it off. Like step away. The social media too is, is really can be very much, you know, Facebook and so forth. Especially Facebook is something that that if if your feed is, you know, if they got that algorithm right, you'll get this stuff, you know, coming at you left and right. You you said earlier that if someone is feeling they have trouble, that they should just seek health or help rather. But I also know, uh, I've, I've seen your TED Talk, the idea that, that black American men don't seek help. Right. And that's one thing I, I so you mentioned I have a TED Talk. I did TEDx yeah, Buffalo. I was going to get to it, October. But, but go ahead. Yeah. So, so we know that many black men, uh, it, it's, a, it's a cultural, I would call it norm, that black men are expected to be, as I say, invulnerable, expect to be strong and, 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 and capable. And, and there's this perception of, of that if you are showing any sign of vulnerability or weakness, um, then, then, then you are, are a target. So, of course, there's a sense of having bravado. But what it boils down to is that, so if that's the case, there are men who might be dealing with things like depression, anxiety, or other mental health challenges, but they don't want to reveal it for fear of being seen as being weak or soft, as we say, right? And and that's there lies the problem because then you'll have someone who won't want to seek up. Also, Dave, though, we know there's a lack of professionals of color. Even if you do want to seek help, who do you go see? Yeah. And we know that's an issue, too. How do you address, uh, well, let's take them one at a time. How do you re re address the reluctance? I think we need to break down those those the stigma, first of all. There's so much stigma. You know, first of all, there's stigma around mental illness in mm, general. Mm. I, I, I'm on the Erie County Anti-Stigma Coalition, and we've celebrated a five-year anniversary just here at uh, WBFO yeah, and WNED. In the building. Right. In the building. And, of course, we're always talking about stigma. But you talk about stigma in the African-American community of mental illness, once again, it's historical. Right? It goes back centuries. But now we know that if you break down the stigma and get people to talk about it, and it is happening. Actually, mental health in the black community is becoming more uh, relevant. People are recognizing it more. And even, even in our faith communities all over the place, people are 
um, I won't call it even waking up, but, but being willing to talk about it. Mm. So if we're willing to talk about it, people are more likely to seek help. And that's one of the messages that we try to give to the coalition is start the conversation, join the conversation, talk about it. And when you normalize it, people are more likely to seek help. I want to pick up on the generational aspect in just a minute, but, but uh, talk about the lack of providers, lack of culturally uh, appropriate providers. Well, I think, once again, that kind of comes down to the whole idea that, unfortunately, when you look at um, the history of, of, of uh, you know, mental health uh, in, the, in the country, there's been issues around trust in the, in the medical community, mm-hmm. which not just uh, in terms of mental health, but Right. Health in general. The Tuskegee experiment. Tuskegee experiment and others, right, where there's this distrust of the medical community. And, and therefore, when you talk about mental health, you, you know, it, it transcends to that area, too. So um, there's this, this, this belief that you can't go and, and have someone even understand your experience. I hear that a lot, too. Like, well, how can you relate to me? You're, you're, you know, you're, you're a young 20-something white woman. Uh, you know, how can you tell me, you know, mm. you know and, and also there's a just not knowing what, what therapy is or what counseling is to begin with. There's a lot of myths about counseling that, that people don't understand. And, of course, I've worked in the field on both sides. I, I live with a condition. I also work with others. So there's a lot of just ideas that people think they have about counseling that aren't true. Do I need to have, if I am a person of color, do I need to have a counselor of color? No, but it doesn't hurt. Right. But I will say this too, you know, and I say this actually in my talk as well. There are many people who are qualified, competent, and understanding, and 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 we use this term a lot: cultural cultural humility. Mm. And that's one that's that's really um, becoming sort of a, I say, a big thing now in, in in the counseling profession. Because if you if you come at it from an aspect of working with a client, and you're saying I I I'm trying to understand. You know your experience. You know they used to say cultural competence, which I don't think is the way to say it. How can you be competent about another person's culture if you've never experienced it? Sure. But if you come at, from a place of humility, saying I'm willing to learn from you and your experience to help you, that's a whole different thing. So there are many counselors out there who are able to do that in a way that is effective. You're giving me way too many things to follow up on. I don't want to. I don't want to run down the rabbit hole or off on too many tangents. But what are the myths of counseling? Uh, one is that the, the, they're going to tell you what to do. That's a big one. When you go in for counseling, you're being told what to do. What I've, my experience is, has been, I've been in, in some form of therapy now, Dave, uh, for, for, gosh, since I've been 18, so it's been over 40. A while. Over, over, yeah, <laughs> over 40 years. Carol but, and I were in college together, so we're not divulging our ages. Right. But, but I will say, though, um, you know, one of the things I, I, I've learned is that it, it's, it's really about um, a, a relationship that, that it's based on trust. So certainly when you go in to meet with a therapist, uh, the first we talk about is, is the, the relationship, the therapeutic alliance. So that very first visit is crucial. So when you meet someone, you, you, you make that connection, and then it goes from there. Also, uh, another myth is that, uh, that, that basically um, you have to, you have to you know, divulge a whole life story overnight. It's a process. You know, some people who aren't used to it, it takes time to learn how to um, trust the person you're talking to. I've, I've been through it a lot of myself, so mm-hmm. I know the benefits of being open and honest. And that's part of it, too, is just, just understanding that, that the person's there to help you and to guide you, but not to tell you, you know, exactly how to live your life. Before we move on to generational trauma, though, I did want to pick up on another thread, the idea that there aren't enough culturally sensitive providers. 
what can be done there? First of all, why is that a problem? Or, or how did that problem come about? And what can be done about it? Well, that's also historical. Uh, even even the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, um, you know, has has I guess come about over the years, realizing there's been gaps, uh, you know, in terms of just their own awareness of of treating people of color and people of different racial backgrounds. Um, so so there's an understanding that in the in the behavioral health community, there's a need to educate, and a lot of that's happening right now. If you look at, at the local providers, uh, community-based providers, Horizon Health Services, Spectrum Human Services, Best Self Behavioral Health, Endeavor uh, Human Service, Health Services, uh, Monsignor Carr through Catholic Church, they're all doing their internal work right now to educate their own uh, clinicians uh, through training. And a lot of, of course, this buzzword, you're going to have someone on talking about DEI, diversity, mm-hmm, equity, inclusion. Mm-hmm. That is not just a buzzword, but a lot of agencies are bringing in people to talk about these things so that their their counselors and therapists can be more culturally you know, aware about the people they're working with. We will talk more in the next segment about cultural awareness. Jay Moran standing by with Jeremy Besh from Stone Bench Consulting. That's going to be a fun segment. We'll play a little game. I promise it'll be good. In the meantime, though, Carl Shallowhorn is here. He's a mental health counselor. He's with Shallowhorn Associates. He's the chair of the Erie County Anti-Stigma Coalition. We past, talk- chair. past chair. Past chair? Past chair. Not current? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. He's also, uh, you've, you've heard his TED Talk. If you can find it online, it's pretty amazing. And uh, he is also uh, director of youth programs for the Mental Health Advocates of Western New York. In the time we have left here, talk about generational trauma. The idea that, okay, uh, I don't know, Garnell Whitfield Jr. may not have been uh, at the tops, but his mother was killed there. And as someone who lived in that community, he's got trauma upon trauma upon trauma that was starting to pile up, the body keeps score, we said it earlier, that was starting to pile up even before tops. Well, we're talking, you talk about generational trauma, Dave, it, it's centuries. So there is a, uh, uh, a model concept called post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is another form of generational trauma. And, and it was basically came about uh, the researcher, social worker who, 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 who posited this idea was Dr. Joy Guru. And, and essentially what she does is she looks at the impact of years uh, from the Middle Passage, you know, then you go through slavery, Jim Crow, and then even through today where it, actually it was related to Holocaust survivors and, and, their, and, their, and their, uh, you know, their, um, the, the generations that followed. They had, they had done actually DNA testing to show that there was actually changes in DNA because of trauma and stress? Yes, yes. yes. So, wow. So it's passed along. So, so think about it this way. What happens, though, it, it, it's also where, over time, um, this idea of post-traumatic slave syndrome is that uh, there are certain, I guess you could say, behaviors that develop as means of survival mechanisms to manage and to cope with the stresses of daily life, but also the traumas that are passed along from, from time. So... You know, as you know, slavery obviously there were I mean, trauma upon trauma placed on individuals, and and it, it's like like I said, the body keeps the score, right? So when when you are undergoing trauma, you 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 hold in the body. You you know there are many times you you know there's no ways no way to uh, release it, so it takes effect. It takes it takes a toll mentally emotionally. So that's why 
with, with trauma, it's a primary risk factor for depression, anxiety, substance use. So when a person is dealing with these traumas, that's how it comes out many times. The DNA, DNA angle is really interesting to me because um, I know that obviously my parents learned parenting from my grandparents. Um, I can see an environmental component. We learn our behaviors from, from the people that came before us. But the DNA is different. It's actually in the Tell me more. That just amazes me. Well, okay, so I just know I know a little bit of this from what I read, but but the point is that I, I think when you think about it this way, so so a person, so a mother is under trauma, under stress, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, it affects the uh, the fetus. Okay. So, and this has been shown through studies, right? In fact, I talked about EMDR treatment. They actually, I've gone through EMDR treatment. They take you back to the womb, mm. right? And so, so that's conceptually how it works. So we know that when someone, a mother, for instance, is under a lot of stress, um, that the child will then uh, it experience changes it. the hormones, etc. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, right. so, so, and that can be carried forth, you know, into adulthood. But so over time, it, it just builds and builds and builds. So going back to Buffalo, you talked about Garnett Whitfield. So he grew up already with his pre-existing traumas that were environmental. They were cultural. They were, uh, you know. We've and got, I don't mean him specifically, but he was the just, example, just, example that came to mind. Well, because exactly. he, he testified right. for, for uh, that's the, where the, my the, head the was. Committee. Right. Yeah, he was he, he was he was our our um, our uh, representative. Yeah, one, one of the representatives from Buffalo who went there, um, along with uh, Miss Everhart. Right. So, um, so yeah. So, but but the idea though is that, uh, you know, when someone is 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 living in an environment where you are are being, um, uh, I guess you say, repeatedly, uh, you know, targeted. Yeah, targeted in many ways, uh, whether it be through through uh, you know, overt discrimination. Uh, you know, sometimes attacks, like literally physical attacks, uh, threats. Uh, you know, like we know when, when you're being, you know, in, like I talk about the TED Talk, if you're going around and you're, you're always hypervigilant, that releases cortisol. Right? So there's all these factors that contribute to these, these mental health conditions that people develop over time. And put it in the direct context of the black experience. You called it earlier post-traumatic slavery syndrome. syndrome. Slave syndrome. Right, so so it's the same concept where over time, um, like I mentioned, so so if you go back to the Middle Passage, think about so Dave, think about that era when when Africans were were being kept, you know, forced into captivity, brought to you know the the states. Well, they weren't the states at the time, but the colonies right, right. harvested and, and, and brought overseas. Yeah, 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 yeah in, in boats, Dave, literally boats, uh, ships. Where they were forced into these 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 settings where chained next to each other uh, in, in in conditions that you cannot even believe, and to the point where some would literally jump over jump over over the railings if they could to to escape. Um, so so that's where it began. Then then of course you have the slavery period where where certainly the the, the conditions were were beyond imaginable, traumatically you know speaking. And then, and then, even after that, you go into the Jim Crow. So over time, Jim Crow and these things just kind of become, um, you know, uh, indoctrinated and 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 um, embodied in people. And and as a result of that, as I said, 
behaviors result that could be seen as being as could be seen as being maladaptive in nature. Uh, but it's the coping that's that that often happens because of it. We have about five minutes left. The the final topic I wanted to touch on is is something that I think is part of the public debate. You mentioned the testimony before Congress. There's going to be a lot of discussion of gun control there. Uh, there's going to, as part of that debate, traditionally uh, be a discussion of mental health and gun control. Let's just uh, peel back a little bit of that onion. People who are mentally ill are not necessarily prone to violence. They are more likely to have violence done to them. Correct. And that's based on research. Another thing, I, I was in a meeting yesterday, same meeting I referenced before yesterday, where I found out that, you know, we talk about gun violence and, and people who are severely mentally ill. There's a study that came out uh, by the APA that said that 1% of gun violence can be attributed to those with severe mental illness. Not 4%, like some people said, but we're talking about, you know, actual gun violence. So the numbers are even smaller in terms of, of gun violence. But, but see, Dave, you got to remember, too, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about mental illness. So we're talking about, I mean, um, you know, severe mental illness is schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that. Uh, the vast majority of people in this country have, say, depression, anxiety, other mental health conditions that perhaps aren't the kind of thing where they're disconnected with reality, which is like psychosis. So, so of course, if you want to, you, you know, cast blame on people with severe mental illness, I don't even know if that's accurate because more likely than not, um, they're more likely to, to, to you know, harm someone they know than others that they don't know. That's also based on research. A lot of the argument around gun control is we don't need gun control. We need better mental health. Um, well, that, it, that, it, I, that I do. So I'll say that about this too, Dave. We do need um, more preventative services. We need more money into um, helping people early. So, so the thing I would say this too, Dave, is that if we're able to recognize a problem early in a person and, and get them the help, uh, say like an adolescent, for instance, um, there's typically a better outcome. Right, right. If they get the help, the problem is when there's no treatment. See, it can take up to ten years for people to get help when they're dealing with something related to the mental health, and that's so, where the problem is. So theoretically, if there was a psychologist in his elementary school, theoretically, the shooter may not have materialized the way he did. Theoretically, theoretically, yeah. because well, also people have to know what to be aware of. So I teach a program called Mental Health First Aid. There's also Youth Mental Health First Aid. So in it, we're, you know, we teach participants to learn what to look for. What are the warning signs for depression, anxiety, suicide, and things of that sort. So if you know what to look for, you're more likely to, to say, hey, we need to address this with this, with this child. Uh, let's get them some help. If the myth is that mental health uh, people who suffer from mental illness are violent. If that is a myth, then what do you think of the whole idea of red flag laws? You know, that's a, I'll just say that's a thorny topic. However, it, it really depends on, um, uh, I guess you could say, how it's carried about. Now, mind you, um, personally, I think, yeah, there, there could be the case that they have saved lives. They said that there have been people who have, have gone through uh, the checks who have been deemed uh, not being safe to mm -hmm. themselves or others. Mm -hmm. That's a whole gist. Like, like someone who's not at risk of someone else for themselves. That's why they would be prohibitive from having a gun. But mind you, at least give them that, that, that waiting period. Like even a waiting period uh, could be enough to, to help in this area. Um, if someone is trying to get a gun 
and and they have a past history of of say severe mental illness uh, where um, there might need to be a follow up made. I personally I don't know if there's a problem with that, but then again, you don't it's, want it's it fun. to be the stigma either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's very stigmatizing. It's very stigmatizing. So like Dave, I I have bipolar disorder. You and I have had this conversation many times before. Um, I'm not going to go out by a gun, but but then again, I don't see myself as being the kind of person that would act out on someone else. So would I be prohibited from having one? I don't know. I know I'm just one yeah. person. Yeah. So, so, but if you look at my past history, like many, many years ago, so it's like, do you carry that with you for the rest of your life? Yeah. You know, you might, you might've had one uh, episode, you know, when you're 18, you're now, you're like 49. Is that going to be held against you for the rest of your life? It's really a lot of gray area. But then again, I think we need to be very case specific. Doesn't mean there needs to be laws. Um, I think there'd be some regulation about it. I, I, I think we have to draw a line somewhere. We have to start somewhere. I think some people might argue with me about that, but I think that's my own personal opinion. All right. And, and I can't close with a counselor in the room without one more time, very briefly, getting a coping tip. If someone out there isn't feeling right, what should they do? Well, I think the first thing is just to be aware, right? To be aware of how you're feeling. If you're feeling down, depressed, if you're feeling anxious, uh, if you're feeling not like you typically would, more than two weeks, as we say, uh, perhaps you might want to seek help. Go to your primary care physician first. That's the first stop. Uh, and then they might recommend follow-up for, as we say, a higher level of care or a different type of care. Uh, but just be, be aware that if you're not feeling well, don't be afraid to seek help. That's what I would say. Just don't be afraid to reach out. All right, Carl, thanks so much. This is good. Carl Shalahorn, the Director of Youth Programs for the Mental Health Advocates of Western New York. Up next, Jay Moran with DEI consultant Jeremy Besh. Stay with us. Funding for the WBFO's News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. One of the best ways to support WBFO is to become a valuable sustainer. It is the most mutually beneficial relationship we can have with our members. Whether you give annually or monthly as a sustaining member, you allow not only us, but also yourselves to be financially prepared throughout the year. Plus, the amount you give is entirely up to you. Whatever you are comfortable with, no amount is too small. Please take a moment to visit our website at wbfo.org or give us a call at 1-877-456-8870 to donate today. Thank you. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Buffalo. What's next? Good morning to you. I'm Jay Moran. Our guest this time around is Jeremy Besh, a strategic consultant with a little bit of focus here on DEI. And we we'll want to make sure that we make sure everybody knows what DEI is, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, thanks very much for joining us. Sure. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to do a little exercise in a little bit here. We're going to give us a little chance to breathe here before we get into it because that's going to involve uh, taking me through some of these exercises that I know that you do with, with various groups. And you actually did one earlier this week with a group. Interesting, it was the first one that you did since the May 14th shootings. And you're experienced in this, but this particular case was a little more challenging perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Um... 
So I've been doing this work uh, in and around Buffalo for since 2005 uh, in one way or another. And I came to it originally um, as a school administrator, a dean of students, uh, the person at my school who was primarily responsible for student life. Um, and I learned early in my trainings that uh, this was a great way for me to better connect to my kids and their families, particularly around ways in which I didn't have direct experience. So um, having that conversation post May 14th um, felt different in, in, in some sense because for years I've, I've been focused on helping people move into this maybe more comfortably uh, than they would if, if they had to jump right in. Um, but I'm also feeling sort of a new sense of urgency, uh, a greater sense of frustration um, to the point where uh, let's let go of some of that comfort, right? We, we need people to jump in now. And, you know, you can figure out how to do it the right way along the way. And I'm happy to provide people with guidance around that. Um, but it was, I was more emotional than I typically am when I do these things. And um, had to use notes for the first time in a long time to keep me on track because I knew it was going to be very easy to sort of fall down these emotional rabbit holes. That was your response. What about uh, from your group? Was it a little bit different this time around than other ones? Like you said, you've been doing this for a few years now. Yeah, uh, this was a, a group of about 60 folks. And um, it was interesting because most of the time when I do this, just based around the way Buffalo's built, uh, the rooms that I'm talking to, um, it, it's mostly white white audiences um, with you know some people of color um, sprinkled in. And those, those numbers have been shifting, particularly over the last five years, uh, but still mostly white rooms. Um, and for lots of reasons, the folks of color um, will often sort of nod along and um, offer support to some of the historical documentation I'm giving around, you know, why Buffalo is the way it is and the choices we've made that have gotten us here. Um, but the questions particularly come from white folks. I had a, a lot more participation from friends of color in, in the meeting the other day. Okay. And I think it's because everybody, especially folks who have, I, I've lived adjacent to this for a long time, right? As a, as a practitioner, middle-aged white guy trying to help others figure this stuff out. Um, but for folks who live directly in it, right, who, who deal with these problems day in and day out, I understand the sense of urgency. I understand the elevated frustration. I'm feeling it, and I don't live in it. Um, and I think that's an important thing for, for us as white folks, as allies, as neighbors, to recognize about our black friends in the community is um, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to deal with this stuff all the time. And um, our job is to support each other. Uh, which sometimes means staying silent, but always means being present. And I think as a community, we can do a better job of that. We're going to go through this exercise here in uh, just a little bit, and um, I'm looking forward to, to getting into that for sure. Uh, but at the same time, this is a, a kind of a large ranging question, but you're going to take me through this exercise. It's going to show me how to reflect upon myself, my privileges, and what I can and cannot do with those. I'm wondering, 
and this is a large question, this show has really connected with the WBFO listening audience. And I'm wondering if it's a feeling, a sense that everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to find a way to do this and, and be better neighbors to everybody here in Buffalo. And I'm wondering if that's going to be possible if people aren't taking these steps to really go through this type of reflection. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I would guess that I would guess that this truly being helpful, right? Finding a way to to bring greater equity, bring more attention to this as a long-standing historical problem, right? May Fourteenth was a tragic day that we will all remember forever, but May Fourteenth did not come out of nowhere, right? We spent decades building the structures that we have in our neighborhoods that allowed this to happen, right? The shooter did not choose the east side by accident. He did his research. We know that. And the east side looks the way it does because we have made intentional decisions as a broad community to divest resources and infrastructure, to isolate the people that live there, and in in many ways to make their lives harder daily than they needed to be. So trying to find a way to balance both the pain that comes with the tragedy with the pain that should come with recognizing that, hey, we all did this, right, is, is a hard thing. And to do that, I think you need to have an understanding of who you are, what you bring to the table, and then figuring out how can you use that to actually help others. It's interesting, just to add on to that, how some of those slogans that have become so common with our city, the city of good neighbors, Buffalo strong, how hollow they feel when you really sit down and think about what's happened to not just those 10 people who got killed and their families, but everybody connected to them. And that's, we're talking thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, and sort of that hollowness that so many of us are seeing now, um, is also not new, right? If, if you have friends in the black community, I have friends for decades. We've talked about the city of good neighbors, um, really, because what's become clear to a lot of people who aren't afforded that same kindness every day, right? And so in this case, we're talking about black members of our community, is that we are we are a friendly city. We're known for that worldwide, but we're friendlier to outsiders than we typically are to ourselves. And that's problematic, right? And, and a lot of that comes from isolation. Um, you can grow up in this town um, and never have to spend any sustained, significant, genuine amount of time with someone whose experience is significantly different than your own. And when you live in a silo like that, it becomes easy to not see what's what's happening all over the place um and that's that's really it, it almost seems a little counterintuitive but that's why understanding your own identity is important because you need to know where you come from before you can engage with folks who come from different places um and that's that's often that's why i, I usually start with identity first and i w- want to get into that i just also want to say because as we're talking here there's a lot of 
ideas going back and forth here, and you know, we're talking about the city of good neighbors. You want to find a, a, a neighborhood of good neighbors, go down to Jefferson Avenue. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The grace that I found there um, has really been remarkable for sure. Well, I'll tell you, I, I'm, gl- I'm glad you raised that because um, I, I commute to work by bike a lot. Um, and I have a number of clients and a number of um, friends who live along the Jefferson Corridor. So I'll ride up and down there. And one of the things that's frustrated me about all of this, um, especially the sort of expanded attention we've gotten as a city since May 14th, is we're glossing over the fact that these this is these are neighborhoods, right? Yep. Whether you're talking about Hamlin Park or Cold Springs, these are people who are hanging out on their porches, talking with their neighbors, playing with their kids, walking to their local shops. This is a neighborhood just like a neighborhood in Emwood Village, just like a neighborhood in Tonawanda, just like a neighborhood in, in Clarence. And we lose that when we talk about, you know, quote unquote, the east side. Right. And I really wish we could get back to focusing on these are people just like you and me in their homes, in their neighborhood. Now, highlighted, I think, by the absence of this store. Uh, there was an element of a, a quality of life element for people who lived within that vicinity. It was the one, I wouldn't say the one thing, but it was definitely a, of great value because you could walk there if you were a senior citizen or take a short drive. Right. It was right there for you. I, I think sometimes that gets lost in this. Well, how you can go across to Wegmans. You can go here. You, no, you, you've lost something that is key to your neighborhood's identity here. Yeah. Uh, last week on this program, um, you guys had Alex Wright from the African Heritage uh, Food Co-op Project. Yep. And I loved what he said about, you know, please, let's stop calling this a food desert, right? This is food apartheid. Deserts happen naturally, organically. The resources from the Jefferson Corridor were, were pulled out intentionally over time. And that neighborhood had to fight to get that supermarket, right? We know this, right? This is, this is a story that we, we all should know. Um, and it, it really sort of puts a pin in it to see what happens to that neighborhood when all of a sudden access to that market is, is pulled away. Um, I, I hope that this will not only open our eyes as a broader community about the things we've done together to make this happen. Um, but also, I, I really hope it gives it some staying power around how can we collectively work to make it better. We are talking with uh, Jeremy Besh uh, this morning, a strategic consultant, does a lot of work with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, he has uh, a very been uh, very uh, nice enough to come in here to uh, take me through some of the exercises that he takes his groups through uh, when it comes to trying to... Uh, Teach us a little bit about ourselves. So, Jeremy, without further ado, <laughs> uh, take me through here. And uh, if I occasionally take a uh, take a break or something like that, I might ask a couple of uh, other questions. But uh, uh, take me through it. Sure. And, um, and by the way, <clears throat> at home, go ahead and do it on yourself yeah, and not listen to me. Um, <laughs> this this is this is a, a great uh, this is great work to do. I I often share with groups um, that I'm talking with that this work isn't just around race. Um, this work makes you a better, um, more aware person, right? I, I know for a fact that my having trained in this work, um, as I was, you know, raising two young kids, as I was a young husband, you know, to now a middle-aged husband, made me a better dad, made me a better husband. It's made me a better friend. Um, so this is work worth doing. 
Um, and it, it's it's essentially a progression um, where you do reflective work and you think about your identity. Um, who are you? Uh, where do you come from? Um, how have you grown to be the person you are? So for me, um, and I'll, I'll ask you to sort of repeat some of my answers from your own perspective sure. in a second. Um, I often talk about how I grew up in University Heights uh, over by UB South Campus. And growing up in that neighborhood allowed me to feel normal in a community of people, uh, many of whom did not look like I looked or had the same experience I did, right? We had uh, folks from the international community attached to UB. Um, I think about half my class in elementary school were kids of color. Um, it was just a regular everyday occurrence to see people and, and, and live with people uh, whose lives were a little bit different. Um, so when I talk about where I'm from, I've, and I should be clear, I didn't know any of that while I was living through it. Sure. I didn't understand the importance of it while I was living through it. It's only through reflection and doing this identity work that I've come to understand that that was foundational for me. Um, but it, it lets me know, okay, this is why when, for, for a while I lived in uh, southeastern Michigan outside of Pontiac, and I felt more at home in Pontiac, which is an urban environment much like the city of Buffalo, than I did in some of the suburbs because it was a lot like the neighborhood I grew up in. And you just feel at home in a place like that. So for me, part of my identity is growing up in that diverse neighborhood. So Jay, where... Tell me about where did you grow up? Sure. I grew up in Hamburg on Chapman Parkway, not too far from uh, the Lake Erie shore. Okay. Went to uh, Catholic grammar school and all boys Catholic high school. All right. And uh, no, uh, I think there was one black family in our neighborhood growing up uh, at uh, my all boys high school. I think we had uh, maybe uh, all four grades, maybe a dozen uh, black guys. Yeah. Yeah. So different experiences, right? Um, and it might be, and I'm making an assumption here, that at some point in your life when it came time for you to think about these things and sort of examine what your role in them could be, um, it, it may have seemed more foreign for you, less comfortable for you than it was for me. Um, and we each have those different, different experiences. Another example I'll talk about often is... Um, so sort of, and we'll, we'll get into this later, you know, there are things that we do that we control, that we have agency over, and there are things that sort of happen regardless of the choices we make. Um, I was lucky to have uh, two parents who stayed together, uh, who are still together to this day, um, who um, gave me a good balance of both independence but also guidance, um, and who chose to live in the neighborhood I lived in, which provided me with easy access to good schools, um, a good peer group, um, and you know, generally just an, an easy way of life, right? I didn't do anything to earn those things. Um, I also had no say over whether or not my parents were stable and stayed together, were employed their entire lives, um, et cetera. Um, your background in that sense. Sure. So my parents uh, were married for um, almost 60 years. Uh, we had, uh, I had, there were six children in the family. Um, so I had, I was right there in the smack in the middle of that whole, whole group right there. So I had uh, older brothers who learned the hard way how to 
navigate through my father's um, discipline. Yeah. So I learned the, I learned very fortunately that uh, how to uh, make sure that I didn't cross those lines a lot when I was a, a younger fellow, for sure. But yeah, like you said, um, you know, as I look back, of course, um, it was a, a great way to to grow up. Perfect. It said, and then a third example. So and. I wish the listeners could see us because we do actually look fairly similar. Um, <laughs> You're in better shape than I yeah, am. <laughs> I, uh, I, I am. I describe myself when I do these functions as middle-aged, white, straight male. Um, I'm uh, over six feet tall. Um, I had two athletic parents, so I was lucky enough to be an athletic kid. And as, like you, I went to Catholic elementary and high schools, uh, an all-boys high school. That mix of circumstance, right, being tall, being athletic, being male, um, being white, all of those things made that pathway for me far easier to navigate, right? If I can jump into a sports game and be, you know, marginally successful at it, um, if, if I was tall, even as an adult, I know that as a, as a white male, if I throw a suit on, I can walk into a meeting anywhere and know that people are going to pay attention to me and assume that I have some sort of credentials or expertise just by the way I look, right? Um, my guess is that your experience has probably been similar in that regard. Yes. Um, and, you know, that, it's a good way to sort of shift into the next part of the conversation, right? Because if you understand and you have a, you have a good understanding of who you are as a person and what your identity is, then you can start to think about all of the privileges that come with that identity, Right. And there are there are both earned privileges and unearned privileges. Okay. Right. Um, I, I was tall and had athletic parents, but I, I know I also worked hard. Right. Both as a student and um, as an athlete in the sports that I played. So I, I know I can take some credit for the successes I had in those areas. Same thing as I as I apply it to sort of the workforce and my my professional career. Um, those would be examples of earned privileges. Right. Uh, things that I I actively did things to have. Um, being white, being tall, having stable parents, the neighborhood that they chose to, for us to live in, um, all of those are unearned privileges, right? Things that I know that made my path easier than it otherwise might have been that I did nothing to control, okay? Um, so part of this work, and, and again, I want to come back to that sort of sense of urgency I talked about uh, with the conversation following May 14th. Typically when I do this work, we're dealing with a long runway, right? I have people in the room who are at least a tiny bit interested in learning and growing in this capacity. And we have the the luxury of time in front of us to figure out Which how I will to do mention, it, right? we have about 10 minutes. Okay. So, ten, so not, no luxury of time there. <laughs> um, <laughs> now I feel like that runway has gotten shorter. Sure. Right? I, I feel like... Maybe let's not take all the time we otherwise would have to figure out the identity and the privilege pieces. You still have to do that work, right. but you can do it in action. Let's get to the action, okay. right? Um, so, you know, if you understand the privileges, and and you having me here having this conversation today is a great example of you using yours, yes. right? You, you, you have, you've earned these things through your hard work and coming to where you are professionally, and now you're helping to lead a conversation that we desperately need to keep having. Right, not just today, but over the long term. Um, now I kind of want people to just show up and commit to the work and be willing to figure it out as they do so. 
um, which is a little different than the approach I've taken. Um, and, and it's important, I think, that I started, I started this work with kids. Um, kids are way better at it than, than adults are. Uh, they're far more open to change, to new ideas. Um, adults sort of have to unlearn stuff a lot, uh, which takes more time. Um, but I know adults can do it, right? And, and if, if a tragedy like May 14th is one of the things that compels them to show up, then, then let's shift the conversation a little, a little bit to, okay, you're here. Right. Now what do we do? Okay. So can you give me like some examples of how that might play yeah, out here? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> you do this work for a while. You have an understanding of what the privileges you have at the table, right? So as, a, as that white guy in the suit, I know that I can get people to pay attention to me and to the things I say, even if just for a moment. I also know that um, my colleagues of color, some of my female colleagues, uh, colleagues with physical disabilities may not get that same level of access. So if I can hold the door open or if I can provide a platform for them, then my responsibility becomes doing so and getting out of the way. Okay. Right? That's, okay. that's true allyship, right? The East Side does not need the white community to swoop in and fix everything for them. The East Side needs the white community to pay closer attention to what they've been asking for forever and to stand with them as we ensure that they start to get those resources, right? They don't need us to tell us, they don't need us to tell them how to do it. They need us to help make sure that the folks who can do it are. And that's that's an important distinction. You know, Jeremy, one of the things, not that this should be about me, but to hear you talk about what you know about yourself and how you can help others, you're also learning how your own strengths as well. It's an interesting, yes. you know, you know you can go into a room and you can command it, if only for a moment. That is invaluable, and it's an invaluable understanding of yourself. So there, there's a lot of benefits to this. Obviously, we're here talking about how we can help others, help we can make this city better, how we can make all of us rise up. But at the same time, there's so much benefit to taking this, the, the time to go through this exercise. Yeah. And it's really important. I want listeners to understand, like, I didn't I didn't do any of this on purpose at first. Right. I, I, I did this as a means of being able to better serve my students with whom I did not have parallel experience. Right. So, you know, I I couldn't know what it was like for my uh, black student to have to walk through a night a white neighborhood to get to school after having taken two buses right i i do not have that lived experience i I couldn't know what it was like for a gay student to come out to his or his mom and dad um and the the nerves and anxiety around that right never had to deal with that myself um i couldn't know what it was like for my uh, female students to live in sort of a male-dominated society where their opinion wasn't held in as high regard and the curricula often wasn't representative of what they needed. I couldn't know those things. I I couldn't have bone knowledge of it. But I did figure out that in doing this work, I was better able to stand with them and help them get what they need. And that applies to diversity work as well. And that's what I meant when I said it made me a better dad, it made me a better husband. you become more aware of who you are and what your place is, and that makes you better able to help others when they need it. I know we just have that five minutes left here, so we're not going to be able to kind of go through this whole synthesis. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm going to ask you to somewhat generalize. We talked just a little bit about my identity. 
and I'm sure in Buffalo, you've met a lot of people just like me, almost beyond middle age, white man, <laughs> straight. Um, what do we see? Because that's we're talking to a lot of people like that right now. What are those privileges that we should have a better understanding of and maybe how we can use those to become an ally? Well, so it's going to be different for every single person, right? Um, but every single person will have privileges, both earned, unearned. It doesn't even matter, you know, if they've earned them or unearned, or, or, or hadn't at, haven't at this point. The the big takeaway that I want this is scary work. Sure. Right. Any work that we do, any conversation we have around race is hard, right. and we are going to mess it up, right? I, I've been doing this for. The better part of 15 years Have you years offended now. people? Oh, yes. And and I've made terrible mistakes, right? Um, and how did I've, you recover? Well, I've been lucky enough to have others who were willing to stand with me as I made them and guide me to better better places, right? So um, there's some bravery and courage involved in this, right? Um, but there's also a heck of a lot of humility. And a lot of times those things are linked. You have to be willing. The most important thing is to stand, is to is to show up, right? Be there, right? The second most important thing is is to listen and pay attention. You do not need to know the answers. You can't possibly know the answers. None of us can have the shared experience of everybody else. So, show up, listen, and then when the opportunity comes for you to use one of your privileges, one of your talents, one of your resources, to make sure that the person next to you who isn't getting the same treatment you are, can get that treatment, then you may not have to say anything. It's just being there, standing shoulder to shoulder with your fellow human being and making sure they're taken care of. And really, I mean, from a 30,000-foot view, if you apply that lens to our lives in general, <laughs> there's not very much bad that's going to come from that. And it certainly applies to how white folks like me can be a better ally to my black neighbors and my black friends who just aren't afforded the same types of privileges that I am in those ways. Jeremy Besh is with us. We're coming down to our final couple of minutes here um, on uh, WBFOs and uh, Buffalo. What's next? Uh, some Let's make sure we get some contact information because I think or websites we can go to uh, because I'm sure right now people who have been staying with us throughout this are curious about this for themselves. Sure. What can we? Uh, what kind of information can we give them? So, um, really, um, in terms of uh, informational, educational stuff, um, a foundational document for me in learning all of this is an article that you can find online um, called "Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack" uh, by Dr. Peggy McIntosh. Um, white university professor, I, I believe she wrote the article in the late 80s. Um, I won't give the story away, but essentially she discovered in conversation with some black colleagues that there was a whole list of things that were afforded her as privileges that her black colleagues did not share. Um, and a key part of that read. story, because you told me this before, was also the fact that she was quite, kind of complaining about how she felt that she was being left out, but yeah. she really discovered something new about her black counterparts. Yeah, and, and, and she discovered it by opening it up and having legitimate conversation. That article lists 50 examples, more than 50 examples, of 
uh, of white privilege, things that Dr. McIntosh didn't have to think about on a daily basis that her colleagues did. It was eye-opening for me. Un- um, unpacking the... Invisible knapsack. Un- yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and it, it, it was eye-opening for me because it made me realize that I don't need to know all of this stuff. I just need to be willing to stand with people who need help and help them. Jeremy Besh, you helped me, and hopefully you're helping a lot of other folks, and hopefully we're going to help everybody here in the City Bubble. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jay. Take care. This is Buffalo What's Next. Won't be here Monday. We've got the hearings on the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection coming up. That'll be Monday here on WBFO and WBFO HD1. Buffalo, WOL at Olean and WUBJ, Jamestown.